<sighs> okay, here we go. My guest on this episode is Monica Reinagel. Monica has been helping people create healthier lives for more than 15 years through her Nutrition Diva podcast, her books, her online coaching programs, and in-person workshops. As a licensed and board-certified nutritionist, her approach is grounded in science, but it is also practical and realistic. Monica and I also have a podcast together called Change Academy, and we run a weight loss program called Wayless together. And today she's joining us to talk about calories. I'm Coach Brock Armstrong, and it's time to get your second wind. But before we get started... As you've probably noticed, this podcast is no longer in production, but there are so many people who are still listening to each episode and reaching out to me for advice and help and support that I've decided to keep the dream and this podcast alive, which means I'm paying a few maintenance fees out of my pocket. And I don't mean to make this sound like a woe is me kind of affair, because it is indeed a pleasure to have created something that is being appreciated. But... If you felt so inclined, you could go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee to, yes, as it sounds, buy me a virtual coffee. And since coffee is easily my biggest device, I'm what you would call a coffee snob, if you buy me a coffee, I can pay my hosting fees with all the coffee money that I save. So win-win situation here. So go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee and help keep this podcast and my fancy coffee habit alive. That's brockarmstrong.com slash coffee. Monica Reinagel, it is so good to have you on Second Wind Fitness. Yeah, the audience probably already knows pretty much everything about you at this point. So I think we can jump right into our topic. But welcome. Thanks for coming on. And only you're the second real guest on this podcast. Well, who were the fake guests? <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on your new podcast with you. Yeah, and you know what? I was planning on covering the sort the whole calorie conundrum as we've sort of termed it at some point in this brand new podcast, but what brought it to the forefront is I was on Instagram the other day and you know how all the athletes, all the Olympic athletes are now either on their way to Tokyo or in Tokyo already. In Tokyo testing positive for the coronavirus. Yeah, okay, we won't get into that. <laughs> but one of the Canadian heptathletes, her name is Georgia Elmwood, posted on Instagram, and unfortunately she posted it as a story, so I'm not able to direct listeners to it because those disappear after a while. Right. But she she was posting how there's all this protocol, speaking of COVID, around they have to stay in their rooms, and unless they're doing their practice or doing their, their training, they have to stay in their rooms. And, and then she showed a picture of her dinner. And it was this this lovely piece of fish and a pile of rice and some vegetables and stuff. And I could literally hear the gasps and the people just freaking out saying like, don't they know you're an Olympic athlete? That's not enough food. How are you supposed to perform at your best with such few so few calories? And and I immediately was like, yep, this is really the base of the problem is people don't have a good understanding of how many or perhaps how few calories it actually takes to fuel an athlete. And especially one of her size. She's, I think she's five foot seven, 
I can't remember her weight, but she's a small, small lady. She's a heptathlete, so not a lot of muscle mass, just enough to to keep her agile and 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 powerful. But yeah, it's uh, so it really did put it in the forefront, and I wanted to bring you on sooner rather than later. I'm surprised that that's the way you thought people would react. I thought you were going to take that story in the opposite direction and say that people would look at a meal that might be appropriate for a competitive athlete and freak out about how many calories were in it. So I thought you were going to go the exact opposite. And I'm remembering, I think it was, it may have been two Olympics ago now when Michael Phelps was competing. And he, of course, is from my hometown in Baltimore. His mom lives up the street from me. And there was, you probably remember. Hi, Mrs. Phelps. (laughs) You probably remember the media coverage of. Of yes. his 10,000 calorie days and his the post- infamous 10,000 calories, yes. yeah, pancakes and piles and piles of other foods. Right. And I guess whether we are over or underestimating the number of calories it takes to compete or be competitive as an athlete, it's probably a good place to mention that what applies to these athletes at the at the peak of the of the profession. Yeah, the most elite level, yeah has limited um, application to us mere mortals who are <laughs> just running around the world. It's a, a really good point. I, there's sort of this crude idea that um, I learned back when I was studying exercise physiology that sort of the agreed upon amount of calories that the human, the regular human will burn running one mile is 100 calories which is a little too neat for my Mm -hmm. liking, but apparently this is the agreed upon amount. Hmm. So in that sort of theory, they always extrapolate to, so if you run a marathon, you're only burning 2,600 calories, and that's running a whole marathon. And that is supposed to put it into perspective for us to be like, well, okay, so what is it? To burn a, a pound of fat, yeah, that's what it is. To burn a pound of fat, it takes... Was it 3,500 calories? There, Yes, there's usually an equivalence between 3,500 calories will equal one pound. Either way, that to, in order yeah. to gain a pound, you'd have to add 3,500 extra calories and then the opposite to lose it. But Right, so we're talking in very broad strokes here, of course. Well, right, and what this does is create this impression that this is a very exact, precise right. number that is universal, that applies to everyone, and it's reinforced, of course, by our calorie counters, those apps we keep in our pockets where we can look up and exactly how many calories are in this apple or this half cup of rice or this sweet potato. And you'll see things like, oh, 97 calories versus this other green apple only has 94 calories. So clearly I'm better off with the green apple if I'm trying to lose weight. And it just creates this false impression of a great degree of exactitude here. And then people are basing a lot of thought and a lot of decisions around what are very, very fuzzy numbers. So I'm glad to have a chance to take the lid off this with you. Yeah, and I, I'm very um, skeptical that Georgia Elmwood and myself would burn the exact same amount of calories running a mile. So Of course, or that you would burn the exact same number of calories per mile for 26 consecutive miles. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, start off very efficient and probably uh, if it, I've learned anything from the 70 some races I've done, I do not end as efficiently and as right. uh, spryly <laughs> as sure. I started the race. Your off. metabolism is going to be functioning in a much different state at the end of 26 miles than it was at the beginning. Sure. Right. We call it the cardiac creep. But the, as the race goes on, even if you're doing the same exertion, your heart rate goes up. So, of course, your metabolism goes up. But anyway, we're getting really ahead of ourselves here. 
how I wanted to start this off is be, is with the whole idea of how the heck we actually came up with this whole idea of a calorie in the first place, because I think a lot of people just assume that it's some sort of biological measurement that we've managed to tap into uh, our gut somewhere to see exactly how it's it's working. But can you tell us the, sort of the background of, of calories in general? Yes, a calorie is a real thing, and it actually is a very exact measurement it is the amount of energy that it takes to raise the temperature of one gram of water by one degree Celsius. And how the heck do they figure that out or how do they measure that? Well, there's something called a bomb calorimeter where yeah. you actually set Such things... Such a cool name. <laughs> you, I posted a picture of one on Instagram one time and asked people if they could tell what it was. And people thought it was like the latest way to brew coffee or something. It looked like some yeah, sort of... Yeah, I could see that. ...funky espresso maker. But no, a, a bomb calorimeter is just a chamber where you can set something on fire and capture the amount of heat that that fire generates and then measure measure it by seeing how how many degrees the water in an attached chamber goes up. So it is a very precise thing, but it gets very imprecise the minute we start applying it to food for a bunch of different reasons. One, because our bodies are not bomb calorimeters. So right. we don't literally, we talk about burning food or burning energy or burning calories, but we don't literally combust it. Yeah, nothing is on fire inside us. That's right. As much as that heartburn may lead you to believe the uh, the opposite. We digest it, we metabolize it. So it's a, a very approximate. So we don't create exactly one calorie of of heat for every food calorie that we take in the way a bomb calorimeter would. So that's just the very first place where it gets a little crazy. I always use that. And the reason I wanted to start with this whole idea is that I think, like I said, so many people think that it really is a biological measurement, that it's something that we figured out from inside our bodies, but it actually has nothing to do with right. our bodies whatsoever. It's completely external. So it, like you said, it's a nice, precise measurement. It does give us something to go by, but it really isn't based in what we think it ought to be. It, it, it's a measure of energy, and that is the sense yeah. in which we apply it to food and to our bodies, but it's nowhere near as precise as heating up a, a gram of water. And it's going to vary from individual to individual. Yeah, so, okay, so given that, I guess we know how the beginnings of those little calorie facts or the little food nutrition facts that we find on the labels of all the food that we buy, they have all these breakdowns and, and stuff. So I guess that is where that all starts from. But where does the rest of it come from? Where's the rest of the information come from? When they calculate the amount of calories in a food, they use a combination of methods. Sometimes they use chemical analysis to determine how much of the food is protein, how much is fat, and then they figure whatever isn't protein or fat or mineral is carbohydrate. That's why you may have looked it up in a database once and seen the amount of carbohydrate says carbohydrate by difference. Oh. And that just means we measure the things we can, and then we assume that everything else is carbohydrate. So... One way of calculating or estimating the number of calories in a food is to first do that chemical analysis to break it down into its macronutrients. And then there's an equation that can be used where you just multiply the fat by nine calories per gram, the protein by four calories per gram, and then the carbohydrate, the rest by four calories per gram. That's called the Atwater conversion. You turn the crank and you come out with a number that looks remarkably exact, like 279, but yeah. is in reality really just an estimate. Because 
the foods that contain protein and and fat and carbohydrate don't actually all generate the same number of calories per gram. It depends on what we refer to as the food matrix. So a carbohydrate that has a lot of big carbohydrate molecules or a lot of fiber is actually going to generate fewer calories per gram or contain fewer usable calories per gram than than another kind of carbohydrate or you know just the way the fats and the proteins are put together. So there's actually a range that can go as low as one and a half calories per gram in really extreme cases for carbohydrates to four and a half, four and three quarters, and the same for fats and proteins. So it's very, very inexact. And then you have the fact that, you know, apples come in, no two apples are exactly identical. Even if you put them on an atomic scale and you figure out, you know, that they weigh exactly the same, the size of the seeds is going to be a little bit different. The thickness of the skin will be a little bit different. And the amount of sugar in that apple may be a little bit different depending on when it was harvested or where it was grown Mm. or how sunny that growing season was. All of these variables that don't begin to be captured by these pretty crude estimates. So if you go into this whole thing realizing that any number that you see in terms of how many calories are in food is give or take 20%, then which is, by the way, what is legally required for a food manufacturer. That's how accurate that calorie estimate is required to be. They have to get it within plus or minus 20%. You know, if I did my job that way, right. <laughs> I would be fired in no time. Right. Well, I'm 20% correct. I'm within but 20%. 80%, right, yeah. yeah. So, when, but, but if you know that going in, then you can use that information differently and maybe use it in a more helpful way. But, but most people, again, are just looking at those numbers and thinking, that the difference between 269 and 274 is meaningful and mm. it's really not when you realize how much how much margin for error there is and you sort of already touched on this in terms of the the matrix but that our bodies actually process each one of those macronutrients or micronutrients differently mm-hmm. depending on what they're combined with right depending on what time of year it is, depending on our, on our own microbiota, yes. which is something that we're learning a lot of, and I know is a, a real thing that you're digging into these days. So when we're looking at those sort of macronutrients on those nutrition labels, what should we be keeping in mind in terms of that as well? Well, you've just said, right, there's going to be a lot of individual variation. And I'm glad you brought up the microbiome because that's one of the avenues through which that variation gets expressed. But for example, just a couple of years ago, almonds got a big, well, upgrade, I guess you might think if you are very, very calorie conscious that the number of calories that we have thought were in an ounce of almonds all these years turned out to be high. And almonds actually, it was discovered when they had more accurate ways of measuring than the number of usable energy for a human body turned out to have only 20% fewer calories than we had thought this whole time. So everybody gets one extra almond. you know. To have this. Hooray! Right, right. But the microbiome is part of that. And then that leads us to the fact that even if we had a way to very precisely measure how many calories you are able to extract from an ounce of almonds, and there is a way to do that, and we can talk about that, oh, it might right. not be the same tomorrow as it was today. 
or next yeah. year as it was today. Because our biology is always in flux? Absolutely. Because our bodies are changing, because our microbiome is changing, our metabolisms are responding differently to our age, to our exercise, to our diet. So, Our sleep, yeah, our stress, our hydration that. levels. Yeah. yeah, You can quickly kind of come to the conclusion that there's absolutely no point in even paying attention to calories. And I wouldn't go <laughs> that far, but, no, if, no. but if, if at least we've shaken it up a little bit for folks... Uh, then that will have done a, a valuable service here today. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to some alternatives to counting calories. Mm. But before we get um, too far down that that rabbit hole, I really wanted to to talk about when we're using things like there's MyFitnessPal right. and and other little devices like that that measure our calories in. And then we have on the opposite side, we have all these activity trackers and and things that we're measuring our calories out. I think we've already really highlighted the fact that this is a, such an imprecise measurement that those can't really be, well, the, the calories in anyway, can't be relied on. But what if, what about the breakdown that we get from those types of apps? Like the MyFitnessPal breaks down like, okay, you've almost had enough protein for today, or you've almost had enough fat. Does our body really work that way? Does it prioritize different nutrients like that? Do we need to keep that in balance in a really particular way? Oh, I do think that it matters, the balance of macronutrients. It Again, it doesn't have to be precisely 40% carbohydrate, 30% mm -hmm. fat, 30, whatever your target macronutrient range is. Again, um, there's a, a wide range that would be perfectly acceptable for your body, but you could always push it to an extreme that would not be terribly healthy, like... 75% of your calories from protein or 99% of your calories from carbohydrate. And your body could even cope with that for a short period of time. But over the long run, you know, we really do need a, a mix of nutrients for to function optimally. Okay, so I guess there is certain things that we can actually glean from using something that that counts our calories in and counts our macronutrients and gives us a broad idea of it. Yes. Like there is something to be valued or gained from that, right? Yes, absolutely. Because we do want to have those targets kind of in range. And and I think also some of the value of using a calorie counter or calorie tracker is just helpful in learning about food composition and what things add mm. up to. So if you have never really done it or you're not familiar with those things, it can be really eye-opening to use a as inaccurate as they may be. It can still be educational to, if you've never done it, to take a couple of days and just look up the calorie counts and the, and the protein counts and the fat counts of the different foods that you typically eat to get a feel. You know, you might be surprised, for example, to realize, you know, how small 100 calories worth of almonds is right. compared to 100 calories worth of grapes or something like that. And so just kind of getting a feel for the nutrient density of foods, the calorie, the energy density of foods can be really helpful if you're trying to adjust, you know, you're you're trying to figure out, I'd like to lose a little weight, or I'd like to gain a little weight. I have some ideas about what appropriate targets would be nutritionally, but I don't know how my diet or my food choices are lining up with those targets. So I think that's a really useful use of those kinds of food databases is just to kind of learn a little bit more about the the broad composition of foods. But most of the people that I know that use these things have gone way past that. They've been tracking right. for months, for years, you know, for they've years, pretty yeah. much got the database memorized. They can tell you how many 
calories and how many grams of fiber are in each, you know, their favorite brand of this and that. And then it's no longer about just kind of gathering information. It becomes something else. I I have had a couple of times in my life where I thought that was an interesting thing to try. But honestly, I don't have the attention span to <laughs> actually continue to track. But I did find it really valuable. And <laughs> was 10 years ago when the keto diet was really becoming a thing for endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. And I, so at a time in my life when I was doing a lot of Ironman races, long distance races. And I thought, oh, I should try this keto thing. And found out that for somebody my size, I should be targeting 25 grams or less of carbohydrate per day in order to stay in ketosis. And I had no idea what that meant. So I was like, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. And I found out that's less than like one banana. And at the time I was eating like bananas, like they were going out of style along with all kinds of other carbohydrates. And it was a real eye opener, like you said, to just find out like what does that actually mean to to eat a certain amount of protein or eat a certain amount of carbohydrate. Yeah, I think it's um, very helpful for people who are trying to keep their protein intake. So as I've gotten a little bit older, I've become more and more aware of how important it is for me to keep my protein up because I don't want to be losing lean muscle as I as I get older. And I really thought that I was doing a pretty good job with protein, but I'm not a big meat eater. And mm. if you don't eat animal protein, it becomes a lot more challenging. So uh, we are all told that legumes are a good source of vegetarian protein or or that nuts are a good source of vegetarian protein but when you really look you see that legumes are about half protein and a half carbohydrate as opposed to Mm. pretty much you know 90 percent protein in in meat or that nuts are like five or ten percent protein they're not a great yeah they're not a great source of of protein but we're told that they are right and um so when I, I know bodybuilders that rely on peanut butter sandwiches to get their protein. <laughs> okay, well, peanut butter is a slightly different situation because peanuts mm. are not technically nuts. They're legumes, and so they uh, are a little okay. bit higher, but they're still higher in fat than they are in protein. Mm. Um, and I do actually rely on, on peanuts and peanut butter to keep my protein up. But my point is just when I really started to keep track of protein intake for, for a little while, it was eye-opening for me to realize how infrequently I was actually hitting the target for protein. I was overestimating the amount of protein I was eating. So that's exactly the way we can use those tools helpfully to kind of make some adjustments and clear up some misconceptions that we might have. Okay. So again, we're talking about looking at really broad strokes. We're looking at sort of generalizations and getting a an idea of what we're putting into our body, right. not counting every calorie down to the last, last gram or last calorie, really. And I think that leads me to this next idea of we tend to measure our calories out using like activity trackers these days. I wore an Apple watch for a better part of three years Mm -hmm. and it was constantly rewarding me or scolding me because I wasn't burning enough calories or had burned enough calories or or whatever. And uh, that caused me to actually do some a deep dive into how accurate those are. Yeah. And get this, some of them were up to 90% inaccurate when compared against the gold standard of actually measuring this stuff. So not only are we getting a, an inaccurate view from our intake, but we're getting a potentially wildly inaccurate view of our output. For sure. And the same thing applies to the machines that we see at the gym that give you a calorie oh, yeah. uh, rate that show you how many calories you've burned or the activity trackers where you're not actually, it's not a wearable, you're still just logging until you tell it, I ran for 30 minutes, or I did housework for 30 minutes or whatever. And it's calculating it 
it's telling you how many calories you've burned. And yes, I would say those are even less accurate than the counts of how many calories we're taking in. Maybe they're useful relative to one another. You can see, wow, okay, running burns a lot more calories than walking for the same amount of time. Maybe not for the same distance, but so you can learn the relative. But yeah, thinking that, okay, I have now burned 100 calories. I now get to eat 100 calories and Mm. I will be at neutral is wildly overestimating the accuracy of both of those numbers. Plus, it's just a terrible philosophy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, that is really what leads to a lot of eating disorders is exactly that kind of that kind of thinking. Well, and it also, I think it breeds a very unhealthy relationship to exercise where we view Mm -hmm. exercise primarily as a way to burn calories or to earn food. Right. And that sets up a very unhealthy dynamic. And I think it really can undermine our pleasure in exercise, where if if the only way we're evaluating exercise is how many calories it is supposedly burning, Mm -hmm. instead of how much enjoyment we're getting out of it or how well it suits our body or our lifestyle or or whatever, we may be missing out on forms of activity or an exercise that we would really enjoy a lot more. Maybe we would ultimately end up burning more calories because we did them more often, but we don't mm-hmm. do them because they don't look valuable enough in our activity trackers. Um, and it's sort of the opposite effect of when people will choose what to eat based solely on how many calories it is. If they're trying to lose yeah. weight, they just evaluate their options and they just choose the one with the lowest calories without considering what will I enjoy most right now? What else would I be getting from that food? How am I going to feel after I eat it? So yeah, this obsession with calories has a lot of unhealthy consequences, I think. Okay, I hate to do this. We have lots to talk about still, but it's time to go and pay our membership fees. Do you like to shop on amazon.com and enjoy supporting this podcast? You do? Well, have I got a deal for you. If you start your Amazon shopping adventure by going to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon, I will get a small percentage of the money that you spend. And the best part is that you don't pay anything extra. This all comes out of their pockets. Take that, Bezos. So next time you buy anything on Amazon, go to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon and shop while also supporting this podcast. I truly thank you for being a listener and for your support. That's brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon. As a coach for years now, I've had clients that come to me and say, you know, should I be eating more before a workout or should I be having this protein shake right after the workout? Or like, how do I fuel appropriately for this workout? And it's like, well, there are some, some general guidelines, of course, but how do you feel? Like, do you have enough energy before the workout, during the workout, Mm -hmm. after the workout? How does it actually feel? Are you, are you not able to execute the workout properly because you're low energy? Is that low energy maybe because you didn't sleep well? Like, there are so many things that that go into it that we can actually just easily measure for ourselves because we're aware of how we feel, how our brain feels, how our muscles are feeling, that we tend to override with these ideas that the, the Powerade gel pack said to take one every 15 minutes. Right. So hell or high water, I'm downing this every 15 minutes, even if I feel great. And I've seen people actually, well, myself included, throwing up on a bicycle because I've pounded too many of those gels and my body was just like, look, man, I can't digest this right now. And who is it that's telling you to eat one every 15 minutes? 
the company the that's selling it to you, right? Yeah. But I have my own version of that where I'll have people come to me and say, look, I'm, I'm trying to lose weight and it's not working. And I've calculated how many calories I need every day. I need 1,878 calories <laughs> per day. And that should allow me to lose one and one half pounds per week. And I'm tracking every calorie and I'm weighing every raisin and I am taking in precisely 1,878 calories per day and I'm not losing weight. What's the problem here? <laughs> like, well, apparently... 1,878 calories a day, give or take 20%, is the amount of calories that you need to maintain your current weight. So when you people want to know, like they can't figure out why they can't lose weight and they want to know how many calories they should eat, one good place to start is fewer. You know, start yeah. with just fewer and see, and see if that moves the needle. But we can get some, uh, some objective feedback in terms of our outcome. Although that's a whole other conversation about how to interpret the information that you get from your bathroom scale. Well, and you touched on something really interesting right there. The basal metabolic rate is something that um, I've actually, I know you've written about it in the past and how it actually ends up in these calorie trackers, oh. in the activity trackers, you end up double dipping in, yes. in essence. Can you explain that? Right. So we burn a certain number of calories per hour, just kind of pumping blood and growing hair and, you know, keeping the, the lights on. That's right. Um, and that's what we refer to as our basal metabolic rate. So if you just were to spend the whole day in bed, that's about how many calories you would burn over the course of the day. And then you get to add, then other activity burns additional calories and the combination of your basal metabolic rate plus your activity burn, that's how many calories you need for the course of the day. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not even just the exercise either. This is if you're walking to the bus stop. That adds to everything you do, right, on top of lying in bed, I mean, beyond lying in bed. So those activity trackers, when they're calculating how many calories you've burned playing softball for 90 minutes or whatever, that number includes that basal metabolic rate. But that number gets added on to the basal metabolic rate when they're calculating how many calories you get to eat that day. It's a, it's a totally broken equation um, because, yes, you're right, that 50 or so calories that you're spending just keeping the lights on ends up getting counted twice. And then people end up overcompensating themselves for the amount of exercise that they do uh, and, and replacing more than that number of calories because of this kind of double dipping effect. Not helpful. Yeah, so you've taken an inaccurate measurement to begin with, right. and then and then skewed. <laughs> then the you've numbers doubled one horribly. part of it, right? <laughs> and I know there are devices out there that a lot of people are wearing these days, like the Apple Watch is one of them. That's also it's aware of how tall I am, my gender, my heart rate at any given moment, the amount of movement I'm doing, maybe your based age, on my arm, yeah, my age. It's got a, a lot of information built into it. But, you know, the other day I was playing tennis and tennis is one of those sort of weird little sports that you stay very confined to a very specific location. And you don't I, if I'm left handed and I wear my watch in my right hand. So I tended to not move my right hand. And at the end of a almost hour long tennis game, it said that I'd burnt 67 calories. Now, that sounds like it's more like my basal metabolic rate. Right. Good thing that's not why you were playing tennis, or you would have been mightily disappointed. Right. Because you have only earned like one third of a chocolate chip cookie from that entire effort. Yeah. And I hope everybody can hear me rolling my eyes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we should do a lot. Of, we're doing a lot of air quotes and eye rolling here. Unfortunately, you can't see that going on. But how do we make this helpful for people? I mean, they're looking yeah. for ways to make meaningful data-driven decisions about their health. You know, and I don't want to just pull the rug out from everyone and then leave them with nothing. Yeah. Okay. So 
Perfect. <laughs> How can we make this actually work for us? I think what we've been talking about today is not to invalidate science behind it, but just to help people use it more effectively. And the first way they can use it more effectively is by taking it all with a really big grain of salt or or, or just, you know, fuzzy parentheses around it to realize that, you know, it's kind of, I'm not a golfer, but I think the first thing you do when you golf is you hit it really hard and you try to get it on the green, right? And then you try to put yes. it into the, what do they call it? The hole, the cup? The hole, yeah. The hole. So I would look at those calorie estimates for food, for activity, for how many calories you think you might need over the course of the day. That's like the hit that gets it hopefully onto the green, but there's still a lot of fine tuning that's going to have to happen for you to actually sink the putt. Does that metaphor work? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and then once you've got that information, once you're on the green, then what? Well, right. Then you're, you take out a different, um, not mallet Um. club (laughs) 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 to, to, and you're, and you're working in a much finer area with much finer adjustments. You know, you're not bringing all your power into it. You're just, um, kind of tapping it one way or the other to get it to go in. This metaphor may collapse under its own weight here. No, I'm loving this metaphor because it actually is when you're hitting, when you're driving the ball, it's much more general. It's much more powerful. Right. It's more sort of just like you're heading in that direction. You're doing your best and you're putting a lot of power behind it. But then when you get to the to the green and you're putting, it's a lot more finesse and a little more, a little more precision. And it's also intuition because there's some rolling on the yeah. on the hill of the of the green itself that you need to compensate for. And I take that or we could torture this metaphor farther into being that's where you start to listen to your own intuition about your body and start to value that your body will tell you what it needs especially in terms of exercise and fitness like when you're in the middle of a workout and you hit that wall it is not subtle like right. when you have really hard to run mistake out of fuel, that yeah. it's hard to mistake that and giving yourself permission to actually hit that ball a little harder or a little softer to learn how that's going to affect, okay, we should probably abandon the golf thing at this point. But one of the greatest things that I think I ever learned as a, as an athlete was starting to do fasted workouts Mm -hmm. because I learned how far I could actually push myself before I completely fell apart, which gave me the knowledge to say, Hey, you know what, that like every 15 minutes taking the gel isn't actually necessary for this type of workout or having that great big breakfast didn't really change the, or not having that great big breakfast more, more acutely didn't really change the workout. It didn't really affect it. So I gave myself that knowledge of my own physiology, my own biology to move forward. And I think, I think that is, uh, that's much more valuable than counting everything. Right. And I think that's a really good use of training because we don't have to win a race every single time we go out. So you can afford Mm. some trial and error emphasis on the error, right? You can try a different style of breakfast or a different timing or a different amount and see how it affects your workout. And if it's a disaster, you have gained really, really valuable information. And you gain, uh, and even if it is a disaster, you gain a lot of information, understanding how your body feels when you're getting close to, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you're not feeling that way, then you, then you know that, oh, I've got some steam left. I'm not at the limit yet because I know what that feels like shortly before, you know, I bunk. So it's, it's all really good information. But the other reason I think that it's helpful to gather that information and tune in and, and, and see how you're feeling is that it's, you're not going to perfect this equation and then know like, well, from now on, I know that if I eat 
one half of a bagel, this cream cheese, half a banana, this chia seed, I'm going to have a personal best because it's going to change from day to day. And the more information you have about how you feel and what that means for your stamina and your endurance and your power, the more you can adjust on the fly based on that information and maybe adjust the size of a meal or a snack or take a little bit extra with you on a run because you have that information and you're not outsourcing it to this kind of false sense of expertise about like, nope, this is exactly the right breakfast for this workout every time because it's just never going to be that way. Yeah. And I, I'm full disclosure, Monica and I do run a, a weight loss program together. And we also do a podcast called Change Academy. <laughs> this can't be the first they've ever heard of this. <laughs> no, probably not. But we uh, so we have talked about this kind of stuff it, quite, a bit, quite in, a bit in the past. And a lot of the people who come into the weight loss program when they first arrive, they really are afraid to mm. do those experiments. Mm-hmm. They're, they're afraid to do it wrong. And as you just highlighted, sometimes making those errors is so much more valuable than coming to experts like us and and demanding some sort of a, a perfect explanation or the perfectly scientifically validated diet or exercise program. Right. We really need to shake that fear of just doing it wrong because we can learn so much. Yeah. Like on the food side, people will often find themselves overeating. And when we really dig into it, it's because they're really afraid that they're going to get hungry yeah. before the next meal. And it's like, okay, so you get hungry. You know, is that, would that be? Is that an emergency? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and sometimes people have to, are kind of pulled up short and been like, oh gosh, I why did that seem like it was such a, a disaster if I felt hungry an hour before my next meal? You, you know, it's definitely worth learning that. But you're right. We we want to know going in exactly how it's going to turn out. And that's probably unrealistic. It is unrealistic. And it, it sets us up for a, a false dichotomy, too, that we're we're just we only will do things if we've read a scientific study based on it or a guru has told us that it's right. the right thing to do. And otherwise, we're almost paralyzed with with fear to try something new. Well, and that also suggests that our bodies will never change, that having once mm. optimized it, that our work is done, we just have to replicate that perfect recipe and we will always get the same results. But of course, our body is constantly changing. So when we're not as dependent on that outside expertise or as under the illusion of that uh, outside expertise. It also just makes us so much more flexible so that we can respond appropriately as our bodies change over long periods of time. Like you and I are no spring chickens anymore, right? Yeah. But um, but also just the, the changes that happen over much shorter time frames, you know, within a week, depending on how we're sleeping or uh, if we've had travel or stress level, being able to, to take that into account and not have to look it up on a table or a spreadsheet to get the answer is enormously val- valuable and um, empowering. And also just kind of take some of the fear and mystery out of this. You know, that's a really good point. I've made it very public on this podcast that I I just turned or I'm about to turn 50 while we're recording this. By the time this episode is like out, today? I will be 50. <laughs> Almost, right? <laughs> not yeah, quite. About a week Almost, away. Yeah. Very close. But as we move into different parts of our lives, not just when we turn 50, not just when we turn 75 or 65, Mm -hmm. all the sort of milestones that have been placed on us by society. But if somebody our age who's used to doing 
exercise and eating a particular way for the for the last little while realizes that this isn't working for them anymore. What can, what advice would you give somebody who's moving into that part of their life and has noticed the things they were doing before aren't working for them any longer? How should they approach that? I heard a wise person once say, when the thing you're doing isn't working, the solution is not to do it harder. Uh-huh. And so, and I think, but I think that's our impulse that we just kind of ball our fists and grind our teeth and just decide we just have to do it harder and that maybe that will make it work. So the first thing I think is to realize that we are going to have to change our techniques and our, and our approach as we get older to accommodate how our bodies are changing. And so we, we're not going to be able to do in our 50s what we did in our 30s and get the same results. And I'm not saying that we can't be stronger in our 50s or mm-hmm. leaner in our 50s or faster in our 50s. I'm just saying that it will probably take different inputs to get the same sorts of results as it did when we were 30. Right. And it's not a deficiency or a failing on our part. It's just changing biology that that right. we're, we need to address things in a different way. So I think we just need to be curious and accepting mm-hmm. and, and realize like, okay, this is what we're working with. Let's find out what this machine does and not be afraid to try some new things because it's going to be a continual process, I think, of trying new things as we as we go through life because we're not static machines. You know, we don't just, like I said, we don't just get optimized and then we're good, you know, we're good to go. We have to be continually tuning up our approaches. And it's not just a this or nothing approach either, I think, is often we hear the refrain of, oh, well, what do I expect? I'm 40 now. Right. And then the, so the option is, since the thing that was working when I was 20 isn't working anymore, then I give up. Stop doing it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there's also something in there about, uh, you were talking about, we don't want to be afraid of doing it wrong or, Mm -hmm. you know, or failing. I think that also there's another kind of, illusion behind that, that there's only one right way. Mm -hmm. There's only one right way to eat, only one right way to exercise. Um, And of course, there's, there's many possible ways, you know, there's many trails up the mountain. And, and it's always just good to remember too, that it's not about finding the one correct diet that the human body is so amazingly adaptable, we can not just survive, but actually adapt and thrive. Mm -hmm to some extraordinarily different types of diets, which is why you have fat adapted athletes who can run, you know, 100 mile races on no carbohydrates, you know, their their bodies, they've trained their bodies, their metabolisms have adapted, it's absolutely possible. The human body is kind of miraculous that way, it can it can run on carbohydrate, if necessary, it can run on fat, if necessary, it can use protein. All of those have some consequences or some costs, you know, but it's all possible. So my point is just, it's not just one perfect way and what's perfect for someone else may not be perfect for you. And if you find one thing that works, that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that can work for you. Well, and finding a scientific study that somehow validates or invalidates what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And this is something I learned as I started working with older and older athletes and in particular older female athletes, there are no studies Mm -hmm. done on older female athletes. Mm -hmm. Like literally none. Well, okay, maybe not literally, but virtually none. All the studies that I could find that gave me any sort of evidence were done on college age right. 
males, white males. Right. Can't imagine anybody that has less to do with my body than a 22-year-old college athlete, male athlete, even, right? Yeah, even my body at this point has very little to do with that, my college age self. So getting caught up in this fervor of just trying to find all of the, the correct information yeah. is is so fraught. Yeah, I get that though, because I try to practice evidence-based nutrition. Mm. I always want to consult the literature. I want to read the studies. I want to see what the research says. But what I've had to realize is that in any research study, even one that had a very significant finding where you know 80% of the people found thus and such, that still means that 20% of the people didn't. You know, yeah. you're always looking at statistics and those research studies can give you a good idea statistically what to expect. But if statistics always, if statistical probability always equaled reality, you know, everybody would win the, the lottery or no one would yeah. win the lottery, right? <laughs> or we'd all be dead in car accidents by now. <laughs> right. So, so we have to kind of remember that even when we're relying on research and trying to make good data-driven decisions, that in every research study, there were non-responders, there were people, there were outliers. So I kind of see those research studies as a way, it's like the drive, you know, on the golf course, you know, it gets you on the green, mm -hmm. but might not sink the putt. You may still have to be looking around and exploring that 20% of the population that didn't have the same result or that had a, you know, didn't respond as well or as significantly as the majority of the people and kind of understand, well, what was going on there? Because they're real too. That, that Those are actual data yeah. points as well. Okay. So given everything that we've talked about <laughs> so far, if somebody was to come to you after they heard this, this episode, well, hopefully they wouldn't ask if, if they heard this episode, but if they came to you and said, what is the best way for me to fuel my workouts? What would your answer be? I guess it would depend on what their workout was. And a lot of people that ask that are working out in a way that is perfectly sufficient to maintain good cardiovascular health and new strength and mobility and everything, but doesn't actually require anything very special in the way of sports nutrition. They can fuel that mm. workout on just a plain old regular healthy diet, doesn't have to be precisely timed, you know, and, and to be exactly, you know, recovery meals within 30 minutes of finishing a workout. So right. for folks who are not training for competitive sports, Sports, good sports nutrition looks a lot like just good regular nutrition. Does that make sense? It does. It, and that's exactly what, what I've arrived at as well is most of us mere mortals who are just getting some good exercise and taking care of our bodies can just eat like normal. Right. And then use that information that your body's giving you to, to maybe tell you, okay, well, on the weekend when I want to do a little bit of a longer bike ride, maybe I have a little bit bigger breakfast or I eat a bigger dinner the night before or something and do those slight adjustments. Right. But it's not these heroic moves of taking a whole bunch of energy gels or packing a, well, you might want to pack a snack because it's fun, but you don't need to pack a snack because it's going to be an emergency. Right. Or it's going to seriously compromise your performance. Now, aside from being a nutrition expert and a mindset expert and all the other things that you are, I know you are a very active individual yourself and you play a lot, of, well, you've played a few sports, you love to run, you love to be live an active lifestyle. So what are your, what would your top three workouts, and I'm going to, I'm doing air quotes here for people at home. What are your favorite workouts or what are your top workouts that you'd want to share with the audience? Well, I've been thinking about this today because you told me you were going to answer this question. And I was a yeah, little bit... I didn't bit... want to just surprise you with it. <laughs> I'm glad you did because I was a little bit stumped. And I finally realized it's because of the time of year that it is. So in the winter, mm. I am much more likely to have a planned and scheduled workout 
because the things that I'm doing for fun are more likely to be going to a movie or going to a concert or to a play or, you know, sitting down with a book. But in the summertime, the things I do for fun are much more likely to be active. So I'm more likely Mm -hmm. to be playing tennis or um, I really love gardening and I find it to be a really significant workout or um, ride my bike. We have a beautiful rail to trail here in northern Baltimore County that used to be an old railroad and now is just... 30 miles of beautiful through the forest bike trail. So I tend to do those things as my recreation. And as a result, I don't have the same mindset about scheduling and planning my workouts in the summertime because they kind of take care of themselves just with my fun time. But those are some of the things that I enjoy doing, um, riding, riding my bike, playing in my garden, playing a little tennis. That is awesome. That's perfect. That's right up my alley. I love to <laughs> To look at the things that we can do outside of the gym that bring us joy and excitement and and hopefully outdoor time as well, which is something that we know is getting, well, we're learning is more and more important yeah. than we ever, ever thought. So right. that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for hopefully not bumming people out too much around their whole calorie thing. I hope we gave them some hope as well as a, a little clarity. Or some freedom, maybe, from the tyranny maybe. of the calorie counter and the activity tracker. There you go. We've given you some freedom, everybody. So <laughs> thank you, Monica, for coming on to the Second Wind Fitness Podcast and sharing your your wisdom. Well, thanks so much. And congratulations on the new podcast. I'm really looking forward to following you as you start your second half, the second half of your first century on the planet. Thank you. My name is Brock Armstrong, along with my guest, Monica Reinagel. Thanks for listening to the Second Wind Fitness Podcast.